And I don't know if you realize it this morning. You probably do. Most of you have been here long enough. But I don't know if you realize it this morning or not. But you don't deserve grace. You deserve justice. And what is justice for a sinner? Justice for a sinner is what, church? Hell. When somebody accuses God of not being fair. Church, listen. You don't want fairness. You want mercy. Because fairness would send you to hell if God was fair. If God was a fair God, you'd go to hell. If God gave you justice, if God gave you what you deserved, you and I would go to hell. We never have an opportunity for grace. But God gives us grace. God gives us that unmerited favor, that undeserved blessing. And as we think about the sermon title of the blessings of God, the number one blessing of God for me is grace. I've been given sovereign grace. And by the very definition of grace, I don't deserve it. This is the Divine Truth Podcast, a ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. This podcast is for the purpose of teaching God's people through the verse-by-verse exposition live from the pulpit of Emmanuel Baptist Church. We pray that the Word of God richly blesses you as you hear it proclaimed. Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Ephesians chapter number one. The book of Ephesians chapter number one. Ephesus was a city that was located on the east side of the Aegean Sea in what is now known as modern day Turkey. And because Ephesus was the largest city in the Roman Empire with an estimated 250,000 people during the time of early Christianity. According to Josephus, who was a Jewish historian in the first century, Ephesus was a melting pot of ethnicity, but it was mainly made up of Romans. And one of the reasons why it was made up of mostly Romans is because Rome would send people from Rome to their provinces to kind of protect the interests of the empire. Ephesus was a port city, as you can see from the map there, and like most port cities in the first century, They were prosperous due to the import-export nature of that city. And also because it was a port city, Ephesus was really a thoroughfare of a lot of tourism. Many public buildings have been discovered on what was the ancient sites of the city of Ephesus, including the temple of the god Artemis, or the goddess Artemis. They found, in fact, one theater in the city of Ephesus that could hold an estimated 24,000 people. Ephesus was a busy, bustling city during the first century. And the temple of Artemis and or Diana, whichever name it went, you, they went by, proved and provided to be a place of lucrative tourism where people would come in to the city of Ephesus and they would go to the temple Diana and they would just begin to drop money into the the treasury of the temple and of course that money most of that went back to the city after the after the temple was financed and so the city became a very wealthy city for many many reasons false worship one of the many and on the site of that city on the site of that port city the apostle Paul started a church that would become a bright spot 
in that very, very dark corner of Asia Minor. Ephesians chapter 1, let's all stand out of honor and respect for God's word as we read our text. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. This is the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with every spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, in love having predestinated us according to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ according to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray, Lord God, that you would teach us your truth today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you very much. You may be seated. During the first century, Ephesus was a home of various religious beliefs. Diana, or Artemis, was known as the goddess of fertility. The Romans uh, identified her as the, as the goddess of fertility as Diana. But the Greeks referred to her as Artemis. In fact, many animal bones have been seen on the ancient uh, burial sites of, of Ephesus indicating for us that part of the worship of Artemis or Diana included, but not limited to, animal sacrifice. Diana, or Artemis, was thought to have been a powerful deity, in fact so powerful that it was believed that Artemis or Diana could compel the passions of a woman toward a man. Artemis was not the only god that the Ephesians worshipped. They worshipped a god by the name of Roma. They worshipped a god by the name of Isis. In fact, it is believed that in the city of Ephesus, they worshipped no less than 50 different gods or goddesses. Gnosticism found its way, found its origination in the city of Ephesus around the second century. Gnosticism is the belief that to, in order for you to get in tune with the deities, in order for you to get in tune with the gods, that could only be accomplished through knowledge. 
which is why Paul spent so much time, especially the letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, he spent so much time devaluing human knowledge and raising the true value of the knowledge of knowing the one and only true God. Philo, who was a historian during the first or second century, identified Ephesus as a place of strong demonic activity. And nestled inside that dark port city that was full of demonic worship was this little church. This little church to whom Paul wrote the letter. The gospel was probably bought to the city of Ephesus by a husband and wife team by the name of Priscilla and Aquila who were left there by Paul after his second missionary journey. Paul likely pastored there for three years before turning that already troubled church over to his son in the faith, the young man by the name of Timothy. The Bible speaks about many things that took place in the city of Ephesus. In the city of Ephesus, for example, according to Acts chapter 18, the husband and wife team Priscilla and Aquila taught Apollos a more complete understanding of the gospel. And according to Acts chapter 17, in the city of Ephesus, where the, where the seven sons of Sceva attempted to use the name of Jesus Christ to conduct an exorcism that went entirely terribly wrong. And when this demon looked at these seven sons of Sceva, he said to them in Acts chapter 19 and verse 15, Jesus I know and Paul I knew, know, but who are you? And the demon, the Bible says, leapt on them, tore off their clothes, and the seven sons of Sceva ran out of the house, the Bible says, naked and wounded. They were the first streakers. And it happened in the city of Ephesus. There were many riots in the streets of Ephesus because when Paul got there, people started turning to Christ. And because this was such a highly demonic area, there were riots ensued because of that. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, in verses 18 to 20, it states that many of the people in Ephesus were burning their magical books and were burning their cultic jewelry. And what that did is that brought the, the revenue of the uh, members that would made those ornaments down to almost nothing. And so because of that, there were many riots that were in the streets. Within just a year, folks are becoming a pastor of that church. False teaching through its own members, predominantly two men by the name of Hymenaeus and Alexander, began to infiltrate the church. Therefore, the focus of the first three chapters of the book of Ephesus or Ephesians is purely doctrinal. And the last three chapters have to do with the Christian behavior of how we're supposed to use the doctrine of the first three chapters. And above everything, folks, the letter of Ephesus or Ephesians was written to the church at Ephesus as a reminder to the believer of the immeasurable blessings that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only, church, to be thankful for those blessings, but to live in such a manner as show yourself worthy of those blessings. And no doubt in an attempt to ward off the temptation of complacency because of the knowledge of the, the, of the blessings that it can bring, Paul wrote the last chapter to give the believers the full knowledge of the spiritual armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. And the key theme of the book of Ephesians 
is the mysteries that the Gentiles, that's you and me, the mystery that the Gentiles should be and can be fellow heirs and partakers of the promises of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which was a truth that was completely hidden to the Old Testament saints. And a major truth that is presented in this book that we're going to see is the fact that Christ's representatives on the earth is the true church of which Jesus Christ is the head. And we also see in the book of Ephesians that the theme is the richness and the fullness of the blessings of the believer. In fact, Paul calls those blessings in chapter 3, verse 8, calls them unsearchable riches. And Paul does not waste any time speaking about those blessings, and neither are we. I want you to notice over the next couple of weeks, five headings, that as the apostle just bursts out of the gate in praising proclamation of the God who has given us so many blessings. Point number one, the beginning of the representer. The beginning of the representer. Like all letters that the Apostle Paul had penned, he begins in what gives him the authority to say the things that he's going to say. I want you to keep in mind this morning, church, that one of the issues that the Apostle is fighting is the issue of false teachers and false teaching that had crept into the church. And Paul does not mean by throwing around, as some would say, by throwing around his authority, Paul is not trying by this introduction to seem prideful, but he's writing to this church to combat false doctrine and false teachers in this church. And the first thing that they're going to do is to bring into question Paul's authority to say these things. On what level of authority, Paul, do you have to say these things? And so Paul says, this is my authority. Because listen, church, one person said many, many years ago, when the debate is lost, slander becomes the tool of fools. And the moment when the debate that Christianity has lost, name-calling becomes the avenue that the loser of the debate takes. And so Paul, right out of the gate, begins to give his authority. And so we see from the very beginning the level of authority that the Bible says Paul has. Look at verse number one. Paul, we'll stop right there. Paul is a man that used to be called Saul before his conversion to Jesus Christ. Paul was born in a place called Tarsus, which is on the southern coast of what is now modern-day Turkey. Paul was schooled in Jerusalem under the Jewish leader Gamaliel, and he became a fastidious Pharisee and just as fastidious to the law. We first have an encounter with Paul, or Saul, as he was called then, back in the book of Acts chapter 7, and when he was the witness and no doubt complicit in the stoning of Stephen for being a follower of Jesus Christ. And it says there in Acts chapter 7 and verse 58, and cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their coats, clothes, at a young man's feet whose name was what? That's the who is now known as the Apostle Paul. Paul was well known, and Paul was a fearful persecutor of the church. His job was to hunt down those people that followed what became known as the way, meaning all those that followed the teachings 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, folks, Jesus Christ was seen as a threat to the religious experts' way of life because Jesus told them that they could not get to the Father by external obedience or by their interpretation of the external obedience to the law, but that they could only get to the Father by faith in Him and Him alone. And that cut right to the heart of their legalistic system of the day that believed they gained access to God by good works. And since they were threatened by Christ, they had Him killed. But it was not they, I want you to understand, church, that it was not they who had the Lord of glory killed, was it? It was not the Romans that had Jesus Christ killed. It was not the Jews that had Jesus Christ killed. It was not Pontius Pilate that had Jesus Christ killed. It was not any of the high priests that had Jesus Christ killed. There was one thing, and there was one thing alone, folks, that we need to keep in mind that had Jesus Christ killed. And we hear that from the lips of the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, where Peter says, Him being delivered by what? The determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Jesus Christ was murdered because of the foreknowledge and the predetermined counsel of God, but he was murdered by the foreknowledge and the predetermined counsel of God so that through his death, it would bring about the salvation of his elect people. However, when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and when Jesus Christ was murdered, the, G, the followers of Jesus Christ did not dwindle away, did they? They began to grow. The old adage that you learn in church history is the blood of the martyr is the, what? Is the seed of the church. The more they persecuted them, the more they grew. And it says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41 that in one day there were 3,000 people added to the church. And by the time you get to Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, that in one day there was added to the church another 5,000 people. They could not stop the growth of the followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus was a threat to their legalistic way of life. And so they had him, so they thought, they had him killed. But it did not stop the spread of Christianity. And when it did not stop the spread of Christianity, they began to persecute the followers of Jesus Christ. And Saul was the champion of those people that thought they were doing the work of God by hunting down the followers of Christ. But folks, listen to me. They could not stop the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's very interesting that if you read further on in the book of Acts, when the Pharisees got together, as they normally did a lot, the Pharisees got together and said, how in the world are we going to stop this guy? How in the world, by the time you get to Acts, Jesus is dead. They thought, listen, we've got rid of their leader. They're just going to scatter. We're, we're home free. We're tired of, we're tired of being called snakes. We're tired of being called whitewashed tombs. You know, you're nice and pretty on the outside, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. We're tired of being called that. We're tired of being, we're tired of our law or our, our interpretation of the law being, being maligned and, and twisted, so they thought. And so we got rid of Jesus Christ, but we can't get rid of these people. And so they got together. And it was very interesting that one, that Paul's own teacher, Gamaliel, stood up and reminded them of two men. One man was the name of Thotus, 
and the other was Judas of Galilee. And, and Gamaliel says in that passage that these men came and they tried to make a name for themselves, but were not of God, and so therefore were done away with, and all their followers dispersed. And notice the statement that this unsaved Jewish religious leader said in Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 38, Now I say unto you, of course they had just got through telling them, you better stop preaching or we're going to throw you in jail. And what did Peter say? We ought to obey God rather than men. And so the men got together and they said, listen, Gamaliel says, refrain from these men and leave them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught, just like those other two previously mentioned men. Now notice what he says in verse 39. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it. Listen, church, we don't have to worry about Emmanuel Baptist Church going anywhere as long as we stand on truth because we will be here because God will not allow it to be overthrown. Now, the moment Emmanuel Baptist Church departs from the truth, it needs to be overthrown. But if it's of God, this unsaved Pharisee said, if it's of God, you can't overthrow it. And if you try, notice what he says at the end of verse 39, if you try, you're fighting against God. You know, when somebody has something horrible to say about you for your stand for Jesus Christ, guess who they're fighting against? They're fighting against God. They're not fighting against you. They hate God. They just can't get to God, so they're coming to you because you are his representative. When somebody speaks ill of Emmanuel Baptist Church, they're not fighting Emmanuel Baptist Church. They're fighting God. They hate God. They just can't get to God, so they come through his church. What great advice this unsaved man gave. If it's not of God, it's going to go away on its own, so don't worry about it. But if it's of God... You can't stop it anyway, so you might as well just leave them alone. And this reminds us of the fact, church, that in our lives, if something is the sovereign will of God, there's nothing that's going to stop it. And if something is not the sovereign will of God, nothing is going to help bring it to pass. But this man Saul, or as he was known, or this man Saul continued his threats against the people of God not taking his teacher's advice. And then you come to Acts chapter 9. And in Acts chapter 9, we find Saul still threatening the followers of Jesus Christ. He goes to the high priest, and when he goes to the high priest, he tries to get, he tries to get a bunch of warrants, arrest warrants for Christians. Because he says, I'm about to take a trip down to Damascus, and while I'm on my way, I want you to give me a fistful of, uh, of warrants. And uh, and so that I can do what? I can arrest people who are followers of the way and then bring them back to Jerusalem. What happened? Well, as Saul was going down the road of Damascus riding on his donkey, the Lord of glory, the one he had persecuted by persecuting his people, came to Paul knocked him off of his animal, face down into the dirt, and sovereignly and marvelously saved Paul at that very moment. When Saul hit the dirt that morning, he said, is this the Lord? And Jesus said, yes, 
I'm the Lord whom you have persecuted. Now, Paul, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get up, and I want you to go into the city. And when he came into Damascus, he got up with a man by the name of Ananias so that he could be taught the way of Christ. But it did not take Saul very long to get on Jerusalem's most wanted. In Acts chapter 9, just 23 verses as far as the canonical order of Scripture is concerned. In, Luke, in Acts chapter 9, verse 23, And after that many days were filled, the Jews took counsel to what? Throw him a party? Invite him to give him the keys to the city? No, they sought counsel to kill him. But not only do, they have, not only do we have Paul, who used to be Saul, but also look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We'll stop right there. The word apostle is the Greek word apostolos. And it means one who's a messenger or one who's a delegate. And Paul says in verse 1 that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by what? By the will of God. Are you saved this morning? If you're here this morning in this worship center of Emmanuel Baptist Church and you're saved, you are saved by the sovereign will of God, not yours. Not yours. Because your will is fallen. Your will before Christ is depraved. You would never come to Jesus Christ by faith except first your heart was regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. By the will of God. You want to know my authority? You want to know my authority, church, by which by I say the things that I say? Here's my authority. Not because I'm Paul. Not because I used to be a persecutor of the church. But here's my authority. My authority is, is I'm a messenger of Jesus Christ by His will. It always comes down to a matter of authority, doesn't it? Even for me, as pastor of this church, I don't speak to you by my by the dictates of my own authority. Because outside of the Word of God, I have no authority. Outside of what the Word of God teaches, I cannot know and I do not have the authority to say anything. For, for false teachers, everything comes down to their own authority, their own wisdom, their own knowledge. But for Paul, his authority came down to the will of Jesus Christ. Paul did not teach, and Paul did not write by his own wisdom or by his own authority. He wrote by the wisdom and the authority and the will of Jesus Christ. Paul had a dual authority. Look at verse 1 again. Jesus Christ and the will of God. Paul's not boasting of personal merit or elevating himself above any other believer. Paul remembered well, church, that he was a blasphemer. He remembered well that he was a violent persecutor of the church. He was, he remembered well that he was unworthy and he was an ignorant believer. And in fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15, years after Paul got saved, he still regarded himself as the chiefest of sinners. By mentioning his apostleship, Paul was just simply establishing his undeserved, divinely bestowed authority to speak on God's behalf. But I want you to notice what Paul says that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ, meaning that he was the possession of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are what? Did you get that, church? 
You're not your own. Verse 20, you're bought with a price. You're bought with a price. Listen, church, the moment you became a follower of Jesus Christ, the number one thing that you gave up is your rights. You have no rights if you're a follower of Jesus Christ because you are the slave of Jesus Christ. Because you, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, you have been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, and therefore you are not your own. His life, like our lives, is not what we like to do with them. Our lives exist for what God can do with them. You say, well, I don't like what God is doing with my life. And yeah, that's true, you may not. But God is working in you and working in me a greater and far eternal waiter of glory in us, isn't he? And God has promised us that all things work together for good to those whom he has called according to his purpose. You might not like this morning what God is doing in your life. Maybe you're fighting heartbreak this morning. Maybe you've been devastated this morning. And you may not like what God is doing in your life. But listen, church, you are not your own. You are bought with the price. And what God is doing in your life, even though you may not like it, God is doing in your life to make you more like him. The question you need to ask yourself, am I being submissive to what God is doing in my life or am I rebelling against it? Let me tell you this. And you can take this to the bank that the person who rebels against what God is doing in their life is apt to repeat it. Because God, church, is more concerned with your character than he is your comfort. And God will continually work in you and work in you and work in you until you submit to the will of God. Because you're not your own. Paul was not his own. When Paul was shipwrecked, when Paul was beaten, when Paul was imprisoned, Paul had to remember, I'm not my own. My life doesn't, doesn't uh, belong to me anymore. My life belongs to him. And whatever he chooses to do, I need to be into submission to that because I'm not my own. I don't belong to me anymore, folks. When you got saved, you no longer belong to you. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. This was probably a letter, no doubt, that was not just for that particular church. It was probably a letter that started there, but no doubt spread to the entire providence of Asia Minor, probably went to all those seven churches that we read about in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Now look what he says in verse 2. Now we get into the good stuff. I don't know, verse 1 was pretty good. God gives, us, God, God gives us wonderful truth even in salutations, doesn't he? Look at verse 2. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is the Greek word charis. And it speaks about God's kindness towards those who are undeserving of His favor. To greet a brother or sister in such a way was to give them more than just a well-wishing. It was to acknowledge that the divine grace of our sovereign God was at work in them and by that divine grace is which we stand. We are made by that grace, church. We are made mutual members of God's divine family. But not only does He give us grace, 
God gives us that undeserved favor. Listen, I don't know if you realize it this morning. You probably do. Most of you have been here long enough. But I don't know if you realize it this morning or not. But you don't deserve grace. You deserve justice. And what is justice for a sinner? Justice for a sinner is what, church? Hell. When somebody accuses God of not being fair, church, listen, you don't want fairness. You want mercy. Because fairness would send you to hell if God was fair. If God was a fair God, you'd go to hell. If God gave you justice, if God gave you what you deserved, you and I would go to hell. We never have an opportunity for grace. But God gives us grace. God gives us that unmerited favor, that undeserved blessing. And as we think about the sermon title of the blessings of God, the number one blessing of God for me is grace. I've been given sovereign grace. And by the very definition of grace, I don't deserve it. I've done nothing to earn it. I am a sinner. I'm a reprobate. I am in the core of who I am. In my very old nature, I'm a hater of God. But he gives us grace. But not only does Paul say in verse 2, he gives us grace, but what else does he give us? He gives us peace. Grace is the foundation. Peace is the stream. Because we have grace from God, we have, we have the peace of God, and we also have the peace with God. And this is the peace that Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, that passes all understanding. Have you ever been going through a trial in your life, and you are at absolute peace? You are an absolute calm. You are an absolute tranquility. And you've ever said to yourself, you know what? I ought to be frantic. I ought to be pulling my hair out. I ought to be sobbing. I ought to be screaming. But I am at peace. Why? Because you first got grace and God gives you peace. But listen, you can't, you can't explain that peace, can you? I don't understand why I have peace, but I do. You have peace because of Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 2 where Paul says, grace and peace to you. From who? God. And our, uh, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, folks, the divine trinity is at work in your life and mine. The Godhead, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are always at work in the hearts of His people. Paul says in verse 1, verse 2, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. But only do I want you to see the beginning of the representer, but number two, the blessing of the restorer. Whew. Man. Paul could write. This is one of those times that Paul, very early on, just, just kind of bursts out in praise for the things that God has done for him. Because listen, church, until we understand all that God has done for us, our praise will always tend to fall very, very short of what it should be. Look at verse 2, but verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What did they do? They blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. 
The word blessed there is a Greek word, eulogetos, is where we get an English word, eulogy. And it means praised. And right out of the gate, Paul has in his heart all that God has done. And his heart just unleashes in praise to God. This is a message of praise and commendation. It is a declaration, not a declaration of a person's goodness. Because the supreme eulogy belongs to God and God alone. Because no one is truly good but God alone. Paul is praising and blessing God in response to the fact that he has blessed his people with all spiritual blessings. Where? In the heavenlies. Listen, church, what's that mean? That means that every blessing that exists in heaven, God has brought down and given to you as his child. And where does it start? It starts with grace. Nothing is more appropriate for God's people to praise God than for his great goodness. Whether, whether we are in pain, whether we are struggle, whether we're in a trial, frustration, opposition, or adversity, what do we do? What should we do? We should praise God. What did Paul and Silas do in Acts chapter 16 at midnight when they were shackled, their arms and their legs dislocated from their joints and chained to a wall? What do we see there in Acts chapter 16 they were doing? Singing and praising to God. Because no matter what they were going through and no matter what we go through, we are recipients of grace and peace and every spiritual blessing that's found in heaven. That is why we say, church, that God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. All those blessings come from God. James chapter 1, verse 17, James says, Every good and perfect gift comes down from who? comes down from God, in whom there is no veritableness. There is no changing or shifting sand. Paul says you're blessed with every spiritual blessing. In John chapter 14, verse 7 to 27, Jesus said this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. John chapter 15, verse 11, These things have I spoken unto you, that your what? Joy. Listen, church, no matter what you're going through this morning, you're recipients of grace, you're recipients of peace, you're recipients of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and you have immense peace, and you have immense joy. Jesus, Why do we, why do we say that we have joy? Because Jesus says in John chapter 14, I've given you my joy, or my peace. Why do we have joy? Because Jesus says in John 15, I give you my joy. Listen, if you're going to depend on your joy and your peace, you'll never have it. You need to receive and you need to acknowledge and appropriate the peace and joy that comes from above. Because we need to acknowledge that what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, that according as his divine power has given us what? All things. All things that pertain unto life and godliness. 
We're not at the point where we're waiting that God will give us those things. Peter says, he's already given you those things. You want peace? Oh, pastor, I'm just waiting for God to give me peace. I'm just waiting for God to give me peace. You know what? If you sit and wait for God to give you peace, you're going to be waiting a long time because God's already given you peace. Well, pastor, I'm just waiting for God to, to give me my joy back. Let me tell you one thing. If you're waiting for God to give you your joy back, you're going to be waiting a long time because according to the word of God, he's already given you his joy. You already have it. Why are you going to go searching for something that you have already have? No, what you're searching for is man-made, a synthetic peace. What you're looking for is a synthetic joy. What you're trying to do is make your personal situations better. Listen, folks, you're, the joy that comes from Christ and the peace that comes from Christ does not necessarily make life better, but it makes life bearable because we find our joy and peace in him, not in our circumstances. And Paul said in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, that we are complete in him. I love that. I love that. Everything I need is in him. Undeserved favor. Now look at verse 4. Boy, it just gets gooder and gooder. According. That's Paul's way of saying, let me give you some examples. You want to know how you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heaven? Let me give you some examples. And he spends the next several verses giving us examples of how we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And right out of the gate, look where Paul goes. He has what? He's chosen. According or just as, or here's an example, he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. And the word chosen there, eklegomai, and it means to make a choice in accordance with a preference. It is a Greek compound word, ek meaning out of, and lego means to say or to call. We have been called out. You're a Christian this morning. You've saved. You've trusted Jesus Christ. You've been called out. And this word is in the middle voice indicating that it's God's independent act of his own will. That word is used 22 times in the New Testament, and each one of those times it is generally translated to choose, to pick out, make a choice, or to select. One, folks, if not the starting place of all undeserved favors, I can't think of an undeserved favor that's any greater than this, that as a Christian, I was selected by God. God made a choice of you. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, you are a what? Chosen generation. A holy nation. A peculiar people. Believers should be absolutely moved, church, to wonder, love, and praise because of God's undeserved favor that he bestowed upon us because we have been chosen. The redemption of his people. My eternal salvation. Listen, church, these are not actions that are a postscript to the divine activity. But was from, the Bible says in verse 4, what? From the very foundation of the world, God had a sovereign plan to save people out of the human race. And he moved heaven and earth to make sure your salvation took place. 
That's the real idea behind 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 where the Bible says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. These scattered believers to whom Peter was writing were being told that the promises of God had failed. In 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 4, it says, Where is the promise of His coming? Jesus said that he, when he left, that he was coming back all these years. Our fathers have gone. Our fathers have gone. They're dead. But Jesus still hadn't come back. Where is the sign of his promise? Where is the coming of his promise? Jesus lied to you. He's not really coming back. Verse 8. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is as of the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Peter says, look, that does not mean anything, the fact that Jesus hasn't fulfilled his promise that you think he hasn't done yet. Because listen, church, we, God does not operate by our timetable. A thousand years is as one day to the Lord. Besides, Peter says, you don't want him to have come back already. Why? Because he's waiting for you to get saved. Because he determined your salvation before the foundation of the world. And if he came back, you would never have gotten saved. That that verse is not some universal atonement verse. That verse clearly states that God elected you to salvation and the reason he's tarried is because he was waiting for you to be saved because he made you the promise of salvation that's not some eternal eternal redemption verse god remembers his promise to you that he would return but because he willed your salvation he tarried his return why because you're chosen The plural pronoun back in verse 4, us, refers back to the plural pronoun us in verse 3, which refers back to the plural pronoun you in verse 2 of our text in Ephesians. And that refers all the way back to the saints in verse 1. Saints are the ones that are chosen. This part, church, of undeserved favor and tranquility that calls Paul just to burst forth in praise. I'm not worthy. Are you? I'm not worthy. I'm not deserving. I'm not wholesome. I'm not better than anyone else. In fact, Paul says he was worse than most. But by God's undeserved favor, I'm chosen. I'm chosen. Why did God choose you? Why did God choose you? It wasn't because you were worthy. It wasn't because you were blessed above everybody else. It wasn't because you had a deeper sense of spirituality than someone else. Why did God choose you if you're saved this morning? Why did God choose you? Why did God choose me? Well, we don't really have an answer. Why? Except that we're going to see later in the text, it's because of God's will. God's will. But Paul said this, this choosing did not happen in current time. When did it happen? Before the foundation of the world, he says in verse 4. Before the foundation of the world. 
And because it happened before the foundation of the world, listen, church, because it happened before the foundation of the world, God chose me completely apart from any merit on my own. God's sovereign election, those who are placed, who are saved, were placed in an eternal union with Christ before creation ever took place. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verse 16, that it is not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, but from God who shows mercy. Charles Spurgeon said this. I like his quote, James. And you have to remember this. God had to choose me before the foundation of the world because he certainly would not have chosen me after I got here. Right? You see, God's redemptive plan was not the result of the fall in the garden. In other words, God did not have to come up with a plan B after Adam's sin. Even the death of Jesus Christ, as we saw in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, I'll ask Wichita to flash it up there again. Even the death of Jesus Christ was planned before the foundation of the world. God's sovereign plan of redemption was determined by the Godhead before the world was ever created. God doesn't write your name in the book of life. As one preacher said, God writes your name. God has two books. God has a book of life. And God has the eternal book of life, the Lamb's book of life. And every person's name is in the book of life. And then after they get saved, God transfers their name into the Lamb's book of life. Oh, hogwash. My name was in the Lamb's book of life, the Bible says in Ephesians 1-4, before the world began. Because I'm chosen. I'm chosen. And God set up and God sovereignly determined before the foundation of all of this, including the fall of Adam, didn't he? You mean, you say, you mean, Pastor, God determined and ordained that man would fall into sin? Well, I don't see how God could determine the death of his son for sin if he did not, before the foundation of the world, if he did not also foreordain the plan to have sin come into existence. I don't know how God's people could be chosen before the foundation of the world if there was no reason to be, if there was no sin, therefore no reason to be chosen. Paul just bursts into praise. All glory goes to God. He is the God of all grace. He is the God of all peace. He is the God that chose me. You want to talk about a spiritual blessing? He chose me. He chose me. Why didn't he choose Adolf Hitler? Let me ask you a question, church. You say, if you're here this morning and you're saved, let me ask you a question. Are you better than Hitler? No, you're not. Are you better than Stalin? Are you better than Kevorkian? Are you better than Bundy? No. Because one thing that we all have in common is we were born haters of God. Violators of God's law. The only difference is we violate God's law in different ways. Well, pastor, I've never murdered anybody like uh, Bundy. Well, have you ever been mad with somebody without a cause? Well, yeah. Well, Jesus says you're guilty of murder. So yes, you are guilty of murder. You are guilty of being a violator of God's law. 
God chose us. Talk about undeserved favor. That he willingly chose me just because he loved me. That's it. In fact, Paul says in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. I'm undeserving. I'm unimportant. I'm uninspiring. And the only thing that I seem to do well is sin. But I'm chosen. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, who hath called us, saved us and called us with a holy calling. Get this, not according to our works, but according to what? His purpose. Why are you chosen? His purpose. His grace. Acts chapter 13 and verse 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Who believed, folks? Those who ordained, these are hard words to read, but the Bible says those who were ordained to eternal life, those are the ones that believed because we were chosen. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because he hath from the beginning, what? Chosen you to salvation through the sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. You were chosen. You were chosen. He's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What's the first one? Grace. Peace. You're saved this morning. You're saved not by your will. You're saved not by your efforts. You were saved because you were chosen. And you know what? The thing about choosing, he could just as easily, what? Not chosen. What happens to those people that are not chosen? They go to hell. Well, that's not fair. You don't want fairness. Fairness sends all of you to hell. Grace chooses. What a spiritual blessing. Just as he chose us. Not in some random act but what did he say he chose us not for some plan he didn't choose our belief he chose us in Christ I'm chosen in Christ what a spiritual blessing what a spiritual blessing he's blessed us with all spiritual blessings here's an example Paul says you're chosen is that a blessing to you boy when I consider the alternative what a blessing. Thank you for listening to Divine Truth Podcast. We pray that the Word of God has been a spiritual blessing to your soul. For more information about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebcmineral.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Our Lord's Day services are 10 and 11 a.m. as well as 6.30 p.m. We also have a Wednesday service at 6.30 p.m. We here at Emmanuel Baptist Church pray that the message of God's divine truth would always go from the cross, through the church, to the world, until Christ come. God bless you.